Hi, everyone. This is Richard McCarthy. On this episode of Mustafa's podcast, we dive into all sorts of issues related to farmers' markets, pirates, and the future. Join us. Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms and also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Afri. Afri is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. I have the pleasure to welcome you, Richard, to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. So should I say welcome back from uh, summer vacation or enjoy your summer vacation? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Welcome welcome back to uh, another good day on the planet. (laughs) I did. I've I've had I've had small interludes of uh, uh, technology detox and uh, uh, tried to turn off all of my machines and enjoy the actual environment I was in. And uh, uh, we don't do that enough. So where are you now? In which city? I, I am actually in New York State in a fascinating ecosystem, little bioregion called the Finger Lakes. And this is about five and a half hours outside of New York City in a region with these very deep glacier lakes that have uh, become a place, like a sub-national place called the Finger Lakes. And I'm in a small town of Geneva. So I'm seeing at a, at a scale um, uh, how urban connects to rural in a way that is um, manageable. Yeah. So how far is it from New York City, like from the downtown? Uh, I don't actually know how many miles, maybe 300 miles, um, but it's uh, it's far away. It, it It's closer to Canada. It's closer to Toronto than New York City. Um, the accents are different. Um, people's perception of uh, of of time and, and seasons is, is different. Um, um, yeah, it's uh, and and it's this extraordinary wine growing region, which um, is becoming more known, but it's still relatively um, unknown. Sort of. So it's uh, yeah. So Richard, tell us more about you. How would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about your passion? <laughs> well, I uh, I am now a, uh, I guess quarter century long uh, food systems activist or advocate. Um, I, um, I, I grew up in New Orleans, a city that is drawn to um, 
pleasure um, and humor and 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 tragedy and um, I am, am am something of a kind of a refugee from the social justice movements um, where I, I my background and the way I, I see everything in the world is with a political framework and um, uh, was active in 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 very I mean just going back many years ago active in uh, racial justice environmental justice labor justice issues <clears throat> and um, I began to feel that this was a trap um, not that fighting in that traditional way is is is, is doesn't work but it, it stopped working for me as I began to feel the poison of what I was fighting against and um, and also began to recognize that people are not necessarily drawn to strong ideological positions, although <laughs> look around the world today and I wonder, um, but that everyday people are really interested in practical elements that change their lives and make their everyday life, the sort of revolution of everyday life better. And uh, I really withdrew from a lot of the activism that, that really motivated me during the first Gulf War, uh, fighting David Duke, a, a, a neo-fascist politician in Louisiana. Um, and, uh, and it was largely because people are not looking for the fight. They're looking for a glimpse of the world they want to live in. And, uh, and we need to meet people where they are. And uh, so I fell into food quite accidentally as a urban gardener, a sort of guerrilla gardener. It changed the whole relationship I had with my um, my neighbors, um, with uh, where my food comes from. Um, and I found it very, you know, it's sort of corny, but I, I found it very healing. And from there, I really reimagined what activism means and that instead of... Uh, of fighting the old world, what if we grow a new one? And from there, I began to join forces with the uh, Black Farmers Organization in, in the Deep South, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and uh, who really mentored me to begin to learn about rural issues. So I, I have no reason to be a you know a rural advocate. I've always lived in cities, uh, but I, I began to listen and learn. Um, what their needs were, and uh, and from there began to develop farmers markets, not as an endpoint, but as a starting point, and and that really just transformed my whole trajectory, um, uh, and as a result, I think I, I I am someone who is both hyper local and hyper global, and and it's the linkage between these the issues of food and pleasure and responsibility and. Uh, uh, people and relationships and infrastructure. And um, uh, so I began to present myself as an economic development specialist, um, which I guess in some ways I, I sort of became a community economic development specialist um, and uh, began to develop a new infrastructure based on uh, a newfound trust between urban and rural people through food. And in a place like New Orleans, which has never been, uh, well, not never been, in the 20th century, 
been largely a failure, a shrinking city, um, because it would not embrace the homogenizing, globalizing elements of post-World War II life where we, we just all eat the same standardized food. But it, this, this sort of reactive resistance to joining in that um, American bounty, um, I found that food is, is such a, an interesting uh, point of, of intervention because uh, it would unite the most unlikely partners who would share in the defense of traditional foods. So we found this strange place between the libertarian left and the libertarian right. And I like that space because it's um, together we begin to build a new kind of politics. But it's not a politics based on strong ideas. It's based on a different theory of change, which is based on um, our behavior. How can we change our behavior? And then from that, we begin to develop a new shared history, new relationships. And from there, we begin to re, um, rekindle a social contract that has, when you look around the world, increasingly um, we, we've lost and we're breaking and, and, and we don't know how to put back together. And I think it's through, through food that we, we, we could do that. But that means putting aside many of the assumptions that we have um, aside and, 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 and to, 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 to not be afraid to maybe learn again. Because this is what I wanted to ask you also, Richard, like when you decide to like work with food as an element, was it like a moment you reflected and you'd be like, okay, so food is, is, is the answer or no, it just happened that, okay, you went into the, to this field uh, because you were involved in so many different uh, platforms, organizations, and you know, I, you know, I don't think it was certainly, I mean, we now look back at the last 25, 30 years and, and one of the organizations that I, have now long been associated with slow food. Slow food was a movement that emerged in the late 1980s as uh, an interesting, very innovative idea uh, that food could play a different role in our, our society and in our economy and in our imagination. Well, this is the late 1980s. We still were in the Cold War. Um, there was no field. There was no food studies programs. It was um, uh, a cog in a wheel. Food is about production and distribution. Food is fuel. Um, is certainly the American way of looking, the North American way of looking at food. And instead, this uh, you know marvelous Italian intervention said, you know, heavens no, food is not fuel. Food is culture. Food is biodiversity. Food is dignity of ordinary people who work the land or work the kitchens, and that is a that that's a that's a radical concept. It's crazy that it's a radical concept, but it's one that that uh, has now begun to build a field. So you know, to that whole question of you know field, I think back then it was not a field. Um, most of my friend, most of my friends on the left, and I you know I come from the sort of social change left. I was working in. Uh, Jesuit university and a social justice center. And, you know, it's like, how do you organize the next demonstration? And most of the people who are interested in that larger systems change said, well, what are you doing? This, this isn't, this isn't changing the world. And, and of course, what I began to, to determine is that, no, this is precisely 
changing the world. In part, it changes us, um, but it um, it begins to answer. Uh, it, it provides a place to reflect, not in a in a, in a kind of navel gazing way, but to reflect on what are the hundreds of small decisions that we make in our daily lives that we that we have externalized we've outsourced for others to make for us how do we bring them back into our daily lives so that we move from consumer to protagonist and i think that the um the culture and I think this is a real question about the whole ideological culture of urban thinking is that we are just consumers who, who consume the cities that we live in. And all the discussion is about what is our experience as a consumer, as opposed to being a protagonist, a protagonist in, in shaping the, the institutions and the relationships uh, that make up our lives. And, and I guess that's what I saw as uh, something that, began to really make sense to me. Um, this is in the 1990s when I think in a way, this is another period of time where the institutions that had shaped uh, global life for, you know, since the second world war was the, the cold war, there was East, there was West and everyone else was collateral. <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, but I think for me, food, the politics of food, uh, I began to think about the politics of food much earlier than that when I gave up meat when I was 15 because I I did not want to be part of the industrial food system uh, as it pertained to animals. Um, but I didn't have a, you know, a sophisticated construct to understand what are the systems of of oppression and such, you know, and so forth. Um, but it was something just very instinctive. And uh, so I, I guess, you know, what speaks to you is probably more important than intellectually. What kind of myths do we tell ourselves about the lives we lead and, and the decisions we make? It, it's much more, again, I think about behavior than ideas that, that we, we lead with. And the, that for me was, was, was a big change. Yeah. Yeah, but like, do people really want to change like from a consumer or no? It's like, I mean, uh, I know it's maybe it's environmental is not good to be a consumer, but how about the culture and behavior? Do they really want to? I don't think any of us like to change ever. Um, change is hard and, and it makes it very difficult if you're in the work of any kind of change, fill in the blank, um, environmental change, you know, any, any of the fill in the blank change, because we don't like to change. Uh, we, and especially on something like food, we are so, uh, we, we feel it personally. It's part of, you know, food that there's sort of this, um, I we think of it as this mirepoix of, of social change, the, the, the French mirepoix of, uh, garlic, um, well, onions, uh, peppers, and, and carrots are different mirepoix, but but in the French mirepoix, um, I think for for social change with food, it's that food is my identity. Uh, well, first, it's my it gives me pleasure. Secondly, it's my identity, and then hopefully, third, it's it's a bridge to others. 
um, that whole relationship with food is my identity really strikes at the core of why we don't want to change. You're not going to take my food away. You're not going to take my hamburger away. You're not going to, you know, this, this is, this is my personal, uh, identity and therefore also the dignity. Um, however, people are very unhappy. Um, their lives, uh, are, are looking for deeper, stronger connections. Um, we may not have the language for it, but our behavior tells us that in terms of how we spend our time. Um, and, uh, uh, Carlo Petrini, the founder of slow food says, you know, change the world, but don't do it with sadness, do it with joy. And I think the joy that comes with gardening, the joy that comes with, with, with shopping with others in the town square, whether it's a temporary town square or the historic town square where you have the market. Um, these are moments where we discover the joy of food in our lives, um, not because of the food, but because of the other people, uh, connecting with others, uh, learning from others in an, in a setting that is non-threatening, that is happy. Um, I, I think it's an indication that people are willing to change, but the change um, should be an adventure. It should be something that adds value to your life rather than um, what tends to be the dismissive voice and point of view of public health experts who point their finger at you that you're doing something wrong and you must change. I don't think that, 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 that works. I think it, it is, uh, you know, oddly enough, it is somewhat as your consumer experience. Um, that may be what drives you there to, to do something, to learn how to cook, how to garden, uh, learning about food from a region, learning about the seasons we reconnect. And I think we recalibrate our lives, which have grown so out of whack as we, we work so hard, we work strange hours, we, we commute, all the kinds of questions that we have begun to ponder rather urgently, rather ter in a terrified fashion during, during the lockdowns of the pandemic. I think it really helped us to think, well, how should I be spending my time? You know, maybe I should be looking at the birds around me. Um, but I don't think it's, it's a, uh, you know, a, a question or, or these are issues that are just for the luxury of those who have the time to think about them. It's how do we weave them into everyday lives of um, small farmers, vulnerable consumers. Um, I mean, these, what we're discussing sounds rather lofty. Um, I think what I was drawn to is the practical building blocks of uh, building our everyday lives around new relationships where we um, uh, recognize the dignity of, of each of us operating on, you know, in these cities. And I think it is the importance of this municipal agriculture, um, whether it is food grown in the city or, or even maybe more excitedly food grown near cities and that there is a need for a new kind of infrastructure to bring that food in. Um, and how that brings, you know, ultimately yields in a, a new kind of resilience uh, where we have relationships that can weather the, the shocks and the trauma that we are 
all sort of facing, whether it's feast or famine, uh, fires or floods. Um, if we have relationships and we have infrastructure that that links links us together, then uh, then we are stronger and we are happier. Um, but the the funny thing is that what drew me to developing the the ancient mechanism of farmers markets, uh, where a competitive assembly of independent vendors physically stand behind their products and sell the fruits of their labor to an open public um, is the simplest, most ancient mechanism. And it's also the most available. It doesn't require a great deal of resources. Uh, it requires some imagination, verve, hard work, but it can be done. And, uh, and it's in times where there is a lack of trust that this is an inc increasingly um, attractive pathway. And it's a pathway that opens up a door that can then open up so many other possibilities, in part because it's a public setting. And I, and I think this is one of the great values of cities is that we have the opportunity that we're crammed together in close proximity, that we can have uh, involvement in each other's lives in this public setting that is orchestrated. It looks haphazard. It looks casual. It looks um, as though it, it's just sort of thrown together and it mushrooms up magically. Um, but behind the scenes are um, professionals and volunteers who are reinventing these institutions, reinventing these moments and places where we are involved in each other's lives in a very um, um, uh, easy manner. Um, this is where we develop these weak social ties where we walk onto the premises of the market. We may not know anyone's names. You just know them as the pie man or the mushroom lady. And you begin to um, you, you, you begin to develop a relationship. Uh, you may begin to ask questions. You may begin to ask questions with the people around you who are also queuing up for the products. Um, and, and so it brings a sense of surprise and adventure into everyday life. Um, and that curiosity, I, I think, is an appropriate setting to begin to ask the larger questions about our everyday lives. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I know it, it doesn't look intentional. Um, and many of the organizers had not maybe intended all of these marvelous things to occur. But that spo social space is one in which people um, begin to feel comfortable with each other. Um, maybe not so comfortable that they're going to go on holiday together, but comfortable to begin to interact with people who are unlike themselves. Um, now, this is always the big question. Is it bonding with people like you or is it bridging with people unlike you? And that requires um, some intentional organizing by the farmers market organizers to how to make the place accessible and welcoming to everyone. And these are the questions, of course, that 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 uh, of our age of are, are we are we capable of embracing 
other people? Are we capable of creating pluralist societies where um, immigrants, refugees are sharing spaces with people who can count back how many generations have lived there? Um, I think that farmers markets are one of these openings. There are others, but 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 it's one that 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 that's that has become um, attractive and available. Um, and and while I've I've worked in this field and fell into it rather accidentally, twenty five thirty years ago, um, I am noticing today, and and I've played playing a role in establishing this new international NGO, the World Farmers Market Coalition, as a Rome-based organization committed to the development of these civil society-led farmers markets, is that I am noticing an upswing of new farmers markets uh, uh, being established in Europe, North America, South America, I mean, global North and South. And, and in particular, in places where markets public markets may already exist, whether they're street markets, whether they're municipal markets, there is a great interest of sort of peeling away all the complications of the amazing wide array of places where we find food that they want these farmers markets. And and what's rather satisfying, I guess, for me having worked in this field and believe in these institutions is that uh they they may seem small insignificant bourgeois you know kind of uh tools of gentrification uh you know fodder for 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 automotive car commercials you know all these sorts of caricature images of them underneath that they are deeply radical institutions that build new social relationships and and i think uh the fact that there are newer and younger people recognizing this and recognizing that they want to develop them and recognizing uh, that people want to shop in them, recognizing that farmers who feel frustrated by existing infrastructure want the direct contact to consumers. They want the direct contact to consumers because they want to learn. And so at the end of the day, this, this reinvented ancient mechanism is a platform for learning and it's a learning as consumers we learn maybe what food means in our lives again we learn how to cook again uh, as a farmer you learn what consumers want uh, you learn from your competitor um, how else to present your products which means you learn that your business is as much about marketing as it is production um, and I think together we learn how to live in a uh, in a community, and so the the end product is um, community development. Yeah, but is there like a, a room for this new farmers market in our cities? Absolutely, um, and yet <laughs> it's a very good question. Uh, is there a room a room uh, for new farmers markets legally? Uh, in very hostile, uh, in very hostile, um, uh, actually, what's the word? Um, <clears throat> in an environment that is uh, a regulatory, uh, a hostile regulatory environment, 
farmers markets are like pirate ships <laughs> they, they they operate outside of uh you know the the established code um there are problems of where do you place them uh how do you license them is there zoning for them um how does how does uh, vat or sales tax operate um there's some very interesting questions in, in that they operate outside of the formal economy. Uh, and and therefore, they're informal. Now, the funny thing is, this is an age where we crave informality. For heaven's sake, we don't even wear suits and ties and dresses anymore. We only wear sweatpants, you know, and, 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 and track suits because we are living in an informal age. Uh, we don't like to make reservations for dinner. We um, we just want to show up someplace and, and, and embrace the informality. Um, we're definitely in an upswing for informality. Um, the informal economy um, means you don't exist, you know, in, in, in sort of a legal framework. And, uh, and therefore, you are at odds with a regulatory environment that wants to, 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 to pin down everything and make it formal. So it does require a great deal of creativity um, and verve and agility to develop institutions like farmers markets. And it requires a um, political set of skills to begin to navigate how might we operate a farmers market on this church car park? How might we transform this intersection into a market? which would require closing the street, which would require all these kinds of complex issues, which means from the standpoint of the city administrators, how can they re-examine the urban scape as a platform to enable social cohesion and interaction and grassroots economic development? And how can they relax some of the rules, the laws that just govern our lives and 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 and, and send us down a pathway that's so narrow? Um, uh, it's maybe a lot to expect a city administration or provincial whoever is regulatory regulating um, food and commerce. Um, but my gosh, we can do better than harass street vendors who have. Um, so little opportunity in the economy that they are required to the only opportunity they see is to set up shop on the street well as a standalone street vendor you're vulnerable as part of a market you have safety in numbers you have competition but you have safety and so it does uh it it does require the kind of social entrepreneurial verve of of market organizers which means we need to develop the skills of how do you navigate this space um so that uh our cities are not just straight jacketed predictable mechanisms for 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 consumption but they become places where it's an adventure where we rediscover each other and uh, i i think one of the the best you know most inspiring examples i can think of this sort of um wisdom in uh municipal creativity is in helsinki um a city that is known for its very rigid regulatory environment but because of efforts uh by, led by civil society to 
uh, launch Restaurant Day, where one day a year, although I think it is it has since grown um, to more than one day a year, all health regulations are relaxed, all VAT regulations are relaxed, and everyone is allowed to establish a restaurant one day a year in their living room on their front porch. Um, this is an extraordinary kind of idea to 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 um to bring a sense of fun and adventure to urban life to uh, uh to recognize people's dreams of what if and and so i i think it's that what if that that i know that people experience when entering a market uh, a farmer's market it's almost like you you walk onto the campus of the market and you begin to see a much simpler life one that that brings you back to sort of a very ancient time where you know where where is democracy and 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 the voice of of people and their needs where are they debated but in the markets and uh and you get to see a, a glimpse of this and then you begin to imagine well i wish the rest of my life were like this well how could it be what other institutions do we need to build um, why is food coming this way and not that way? Why is everything packaged? Why why am I eating uh, produce that is shipped around the world through some you know incredibly um, subsidized yet yet externalized means um, when I could eat in season and purchase food from people I know? And it just changes it's it's it changes your everyday life. And I think it's this idea of the the revolution of everyday life is 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 what inspired me much more so than the sort of the long struggle. So what what should city do in order to make life easier for for uh, farmers market and make this experience enjoyed in the city? Like some key elements. The key element is to recognize that some of the best ideas are emanating from the neighborhoods and um you know there the, the, there is no cookie cutter solutions and and i think this is one of the both the strength and the challenge uh a, a city official an administrator a public servant civil servant may visit another town visit a, a farmer's market and say heavens why don't we have this in our town we must make it happen well as a municipal administrator, you could make it happen, um, but you're not going to be able to do it from uh, probably from City Hall. Um, and that's not true because many cities run municipal markets that are marvelous, um, but they're big brick and mortar markets. There are some examples. Uh, New York City has, I think, probably an unusual um, relationship between civil society led markets uh, that are red, you know, that are that are run by an NGO. The NGO is housed in City Hall um, and has a, an unusually intimate relationship between municipal administration and the nonprofit market. And there's such an interesting dimension because, uh, and the organization is Grow NYC. It's been in an operation, I think, almost 50 years. Um, it's a very mature organization. Um, it doesn't answer all the problems. There are other market organizations as well. But 
it has that really unusual situation where its interests, its stakeholders are both urban and rural, whereas City Hall's stakeholders are urban. I mean, <laughs> that's the whole point. Um, so by trusting and listening to civil society and by cultivating leadership among people inside communities, uh, there could be the kinds of partnerships to develop new institutions like farmers markets. They're not the only institution, um, but they are one because they're public that can lead to the other questions we need because we discover that, well, we have a market that's marvelous. Um, farmers are coming in and selling their products, but uh, people want breakfast at the market as well. Well, we'd love baked goods and pastries. Well, where could those come from? Well, we have some great bakers in town, but they're, they don't have a place to bake, one that is approved by the health department. Well, can we provide commercial shared use commercial kitchens? Well, that takes a lot of resources and investment to sustain them. Well, maybe there are church kitchens or maybe there are restaurants that are not functioning well um, or could open up their kitchens to small entrepreneurs in neighborhoods. Um, well, who's who's going to coordinate that? Um, uh, so I think we need to build the the leadership capacity in neighborhoods at a municipal level um food policy food policy directors in cities is an emerging uh position in cities it's a strategy that i think um uh when it works well uh is a good voice for the interests of, of, of food and food access and food sovereignty, but it is also works well when it is, it is an office that listens to what is desired in the, the community as consumers, as well as as producers. And certainly the rise of, of, of growing food in cities is a new idea that's about as old as they come. And uh, the fact that that's being revived also prevent presents some very interesting opportunities and and tell me more about think like uh, pirates tell me like the, the story <laughs> well i uh when I, i i i left my 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 legacy of a full-time executive inside nonprofit organizations and 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 realized that at this stage I, I need to operate independently so that I can write and work on projects that utilize my 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 talents, my skills, but I don't need to be the one who's managing organizations. Um, I began to really think about what are the 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 themes, the threads, the set of values that really inspire me. And I think of pirate radio. Um, I love the whole history of pirate radio where off the coast, these ships off the coast of, of England in the 1950s and 60s uh, began to play subversive music, American music, rock and roll, when the formal large broadcasting corporation would not. And, uh, and the fact that they used the term pirate was so interesting. So 
began to to to, to examine and being half English, I, I knew the whole story of uh, when the English Navy under Queen Elizabeth defeated the most uh, intimidating and impressive Navy, the Spanish Armada, these large ships that were so large and intimidating at the height of the, the, the Spanish Empire that um, they could defeat all the navies on the seas. Well, when they came to defeat this rather second-rate nation at that point, England, um, uh, Queen Elizabeth organized these merchant seamen and, and not even a proper navy, but these small ships that 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 sailed circles around uh, the the Armada, the Spanish Armada, and they sunk them. And this became, you know, historically, but I, I think today, um, kind of a great example of asymmetrical warfare. That you can be small and maybe more strategic and more powerful than the large institutions that um, uh, dominate our lives. And uh, and you begin to look into the history of, of the pirates of the Caribbean, the, the ones that, of course, captured our imagination in cinema. Um, you, you scratch the surface and you discover that actually the pirates and the Republic of Pirates in the Caribbean uh, were these incredibly interesting um, they provided the seeds of democracy, multicultural democracy in 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 our history, in sort of world history. And you could look at pirates at different <laughs> different seas at different times over the years. Um, but the the pirates of the Caribbean were were multicultural, many ex-slaves, um, all united against empire. Now they would plunder against empire, um, but the way they shared the bounty was democratically. The way they de determined who would be captain of the ship was voted on democratically. Um, so the idea that small-scale institutions may provide the seeds of the future and the seeds of democracy and inclusion and pluralism uh, just be became a, a sort of a sort of a meme for me, and uh, I, I'm not drawn to wearing pirate attire i'm not saying that we should we should dress like pirates uh but maybe we should think like pirates we should think creatively we should uh consider that the solutions are not necessarily uh the slogan that makes my my, my veins go cold which is um going to scale uh, maybe we don't need to go to scale maybe we need to scale out rather than scale up maybe we need critical mass rather than large bureaucratic institutions um and and, and I, I i'm not naive i know that the large bureaucracies maintain civilization and stability in our lives on the other hand during times of great social change and great ecological change being large is not a great advantage being small might actually be the ultimate advantage and and i was you know where, where the sort of seeds of this for me came in 2005, in New Orleans, when Hurricane Katrina flooded my world, and I began to see that, that large bureaucracies could not respond quickly. It was actually the actions of small um, individuals and communities and informal as well as formal entities that could be swift and could think and operate very quickly, that those 
that's who showed up and who helped shape the future. Now, those windows for those opportunities don't remain open all the time, but um, they do seem to be open now. They really do more and more. So that that is the idea of thinking like pirates. So that's my 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 uh, my blog, my moniker. Uh, I operate under that flag. I fly. I, I sail under the flag of of thinking like pirates, um, but also believe that you know we may we may sail away and 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 operate with on different ships and work with different organizations permanently, temporarily. Um, but at the at the end of the day, we do also have to anchor together, and um, so we need flexibility in how we operate, and um, and maybe put aside some of our ideological fixed positions, and consider collaborating with unlikely partners. Um, I, I think that's all part of thinking like a pirate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have one question. Me as an urban planner, like when we plan future cities. So before we were putting a place for a market, square, public square, and so on. And now with the, like recently, a lot of uh, digital shopping is being like escalated. So do you, how do you see the future? Like, are we going to have these kind of markets going to buy food and so on? Or no, it's going to be also as we do today. Many of us just order by internet and then we just bring it from the box and that's it. <laughs> so how do you see the future? Oh. And and do we do we really need to plan large space for markets and squares and yeah. so on? Yeah, uh, and you know you asked that question about do cities have room for markets and and, and, and in a way uh, I didn't answer that as 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 as, as carefully, uh, because I think that we don't need large spaces. We actually need more smaller spaces, um, more crevices where we can soften. Uh, the lines of the hard city. Um, I'm much more interested in that. So I think the, as an urban, for urban planners, um, I, I think we need flexibility. Um, I, I think of conversations I had with, with bankers many years ago, because, you know, banks used to be these big, impressive buildings that, that projected the image that the bank will always be here. The currency will always be here. And now you walk into a bank and all the the walls are movable because they're all trying to figure out <laughs> who's going to work here. How many people do we need in this digital uh, enterprise? And uh, so I think we need flexibility um, and I think we need input um, so that it is a shared um, process rather than a top down one. Um, uh, so that we need flexible multi-use spaces. And I think of, uh, I've been working with the, the food and agriculture organization in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and we've been looking at the development of new farmers markets in a place that has, you know, 300 fresh markets, uh, wet markets all over the town, but they don't have the mechanism of direct marketing of small scale direct contact with farmers markets. Well, the answer to that is not necessary that we need to build sheds and structures for the farmers markets or maybe we do maybe eventually you do build a shed but the shed operates as a farmers market one two days a week and other days it provides uh shade for people to sit and for the elderly to have conversations or for other activities picnicking you you name it so the more that we have multi-use spaces where we can have shared ownership over those spaces. That's the 
kind of cityscape I, I think we need. Um, the idea, and we've seen it before, where uh, public-private investment comes in to build a big, impressive market, the scale of which impresses everyone, um, and then it's a dismal failure because the business model doesn't work. These things need to grow organically, and we need to be flexible to accommodate that growth. And as you say, uh, the romance of the box, which puzzles me as maybe someone in my 50s, um, I, I, I love the chaos of shopping uh, and, and not knowing what I'm going to find and not knowing what I'm going to cook until I see what's here versus the, uh, the, pre the, catalog. the, the catalog online. Yeah. Um, uh, but having said that, our lives are changing and, and certainly uh, uh, our comfort level with pointing and clicking and ordering our food ahead of time uh is is definitely here um i think the pandemic accelerated its growth and what we saw and, and this speaks to thinking like pirates the the agility in farmers markets all over the planet to recognize that they need a digital strategy uh for pre-ordering products whether um whether this is in italy where they've developed uh an online pre-order of your products um interestingly enough at campagna mica the organization that runs 1000 farmers markets in italy their website for pre-ordering their products are organized not around the product but around the people in the market so when you click through you're like oh i know that farmer i'll order this from them um so it's interesting what the the consumer experience is is through the people um, in farmers markets in the United States, we saw this amazing phenomena of the drive-through farmers market. Um, I know that in New Orleans, the Crescent City farmers market that I used to run ran a drive-through Sunday market where you would pre-order online and then you would pick up um, with as little social contact as you could to put your product in the boot of your car and then you know you drive off. Um, this raises a, a question that a, um, uh, a consultant with the Aspen Institute, who I worked with many years ago um, in, in, in trying to understand our farmer's markets, asked me, uh, is your farmer's market just a tool? And it's a tool that connects f consumer with producer. Um, and if that tool were to shift, would you close the market? And I remember thinking at the time, this is the most horrifying concept he could could, could present to me is like, well, we love the market, the experience and the, the physical tents and umbrellas. I mean, are you crazy? And, um, uh, cause he said, cause what I understand you have is that you have a database. Your database is ultimately what your market is. And, and I, I thought about it and I said, well, you're right. Yes. I guess we would close the market if it was no longer useful. And I think the pandemic did that to a certain extent, although during the pandemic, uh, and again, this is the agility in farmers markets, um, the farmers markets were perceived by many government officials that they were events, events that were no longer safe, therefore we shouldn't allow them to operate, like other events, concerts, and, and so forth. And farmers market leadership responded very swiftly and said, no, we're not events. We are infrastructure, infrastructure that delivers food to people. 
And we are, as the language became so important, we are an essential service. And farmers markets became deemed in, in many communities around the planet as essential services. And they were services that were able to respond to the ebb and flow of space and people. So they expanded the physical space of the market. If they were indoors, they went outdoors. If they were outdoors, but close together, they expanded the space and took over streets, took over space that otherwise was devoted to traffic and cars and sort of the whole autogeddon that drives our lives. And, and that kind of creativity to respond accordingly, order online, pick up at the market, drive through, walk through, I think really speaks to that at the end of the day, the markets are a database. They are relationships. They are a proxy for trust for trust in commerce and community. And that is what urban planners should be investing in, is the, the, the leverage points that help to build that. Because when you have trust in community, you have commerce, and then you have a place you want to live in. Yeah. What, do you, what is your reflection about? Because recently, in many of projects, uh, urban planners and architects, urban designers, introduced this uh, urban farming on a little scale in order like just to bring people together do you do you think this concept is good or no uh i as a gardener and who probably <laughs> became activated really through gardening first and then discovered csas the the idea of community supported agriculture which is sort of the japanese inspired model for investing in the crop at the beginning of the season and the consumer invests with the, the producer. Um, it, it took me down a path to, to around urban and rural linkages. What we've seen in cities where urban space becomes uh, negotiable, whether it's because of the emptying out of city centers, uh, places like Detroit or New Orleans, or places like London where allotment farms, or Italy, Japan, where they farm every available space, or in the global south with the peri-urban areas, what is urban, what is rural becomes very you know, confused. But say in, in, in Europe where cities are very dense, um, it is a really politically important uh, strategy to recognize that we should be producing food in cities. Now, we shouldn't produce food in cities because cities no longer need rural communities to grow their food. To me, that's crazy, naive, and, and arrogant. Um, however, to have food in cities is so valuable because it softens cities if there are community gardens that are community experiences. Therefore, they're not really about commerce. But we also can have urban farms. And urban farms are extremely important because of the close proximity to the marketplace you can deliver the food rather cheaply on the sort of food miles standpoint. But then to your point about what does urban agriculture look like, it has become rather uh, trendy to explore new technologies, vertical farming, rooftop farming. Um, and, and I'd say that, you know, that my concern would be what is the ownership of these models? Uh, what are the eco what is the ecological footprint of these models? What does it mean for biodiversity? Um, if we're growing hydroponic lettuces vertically uh, with some 
centralized corporation uh, with very little biodiversity. That doesn't excite me. Um, but I think most importantly, <laughs> everyone who is pushing these agenda um, tends to have the answer. We all have to do one thing. And I think that I'm not a fan of. I think they're all part of the strategy to reinvent our urban scape and soften the, the hard city so that the more greenery we have, the better. The more rooftop gardens, the better. The more bees that are attracted to it, the better. The more that it has impact on, on lowering temperatures in city centers, the better. Um, and I think the other thing that, that really excites me, especially about urban agriculture, uh, whether it's in the marketplace or outside of the marketplace, the more that we see that food does not come from a vending machine in the sky, but that food comes from the dignity of the labor to work as scientists, as all farmers are, with um, with seeds and the land, and it's you know it's a very complex process. Uh, the more that we realize how complicated our lives are, and the, how dependent we are on others, and therefore we begin to um, respect others. Um, so having agriculture nearby is extremely important, whether it's plant-based or animal agriculture, um, though there's plenty of necessary debate about, about animal agriculture, um, especially because we've externalized animal agriculture as this thing that happens in like sort of Anna Harrant's the banality of evil, these, these factories where animals are are concentrated in horrible miserable conditions away from us to see versus the backyard chicken or even goats and bees i mean all of those as part of our everyday life i think help to shape our 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 world view and our relationship to food that we can't just develop technological solutions to feed us but that it, it really is the <laughs> ancient caring for the land and working with the land, even if it doesn't involve the land, you know, even if it involves rooftops and all these marvelous surprises. Yeah. And what do you think that uh, cities and planners should stop doing when we plan future cities in relation to food markets? I think, huh? Uh, well, for one, we should stop devoting all of our zoning and, 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 and time for these big box stores, these, these giant big box mechanisms and, and these horrible corridors of light industrial, uh, distribution hubs, um, and, and thinking of it as in these mechanical terms, uh, I think we need to integrate them into communities. And so we really need to scale down. And, 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 I, and I know that, again, sounds like fantasy when, when you consider the, the, the growth of cities um, gobbling up the planet. There's pressure with this, this ethos of feed the planet, you know, that we need more concentration and more um, scaled up distribution and, 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 and hubs that uh, these giant warehouses that we walk in to buy our food. Um, I, I think that that's urban planners should not design them accordingly. Um, I, I think we need to look at the ecology of local economies. 
what will circulate money and resources and food uh, are small shops and and more more gardens where people again assuming that people have the time to garden i mean i recognize that people are squeezed for time but we need to find more time for people to participate in activity that has nothing to do with the marketplace and and the 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 joy of some percentage of their food being grown um by themselves you know with their family members um so providing more space uh for that um and and more flexibility for communities to have a say so what do they want in their their community so um so i i guess yeah less big box it's so lazy um and 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 i think we they, they need to be less lazy it's less formulaic and 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 i think you know in a way that there's there's extraordinary debate underway about public markets of all kinds whether they are food halls or uh market sheds or farmers markets um they become a meme unto themselves that ah here's a good tool for me to use as a developer to develop a neighborhood in this kind of new urban scape like we need a market in the center and um and then and then they will sell more units and, and so forth um and uh i think we have to be very wary of of this sort of cookie cutter formula uh, i don't think there's one way to make the markets i mean one of the things that you know surprised those of us who work in markets is the rise of night markets and how cool is that to see in the global north this sort of southeast asian night market emerge as, as a whole other idea about markets where people eat and explore at nighttime and and you know that was unforeseen and i think urban planners need to uh grow comfortable with the unforeseen and that not everything can be planned um and that we need to to be to be flexible in in that way yeah it's so interesting to to listen to to your point of view so before we, we go to the to the next uh, section of this episode can you summarize for us like market cities concept what is it about mm. so many of us who've been working in uh public markets began to recognize that the, for one what is a public market what are markets it's not even recognized as a a concept a sector it's just this piece of the economy that exists and we don't really know why um you know in terms of urban planning um and that we recognize that there were elements of successful cities that have markets and the success um has come about or results in, has resulted from a, a certain kind of cooperative leadership at the municipal level to recognize that actually there's an ecosystem of markets within a municipality and that this ecosystem is often competing with one another is at odds um fighting for resources um that the pieces of that puzzle whether it's the farmers market that's run by a civil society informal street markets that no one's running um uh municipal public market even a network of them they're all 
they're all pieces of an ecosystem, but they may look at each other as competitive over, you know, access to resources, consumers, um, and, 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 and food sources. And that the wisdom that has emerged in some places in some ways is, is what we refer to as a market city. And we've identified seven elements of a market city and, um, and it, you know, it begins with measuring um, um, and, and mapping how many markets are there. And, and one of the most extraordinary phenomena is, is when meeting with a, you know, a city mayor and you map out all the markets and the different kinds of markets in the city. And again, these are public markets. So a public assembly of independent vendors who compete with each other um, for consumer attention. Uh, therefore, multiple checkout lines rather than the centralized supermarket model of checkout. Um, and you show the map of, of this to the mayor and the mayor will look at this absolutely puzzled, having no idea that this ecosystem operates under the mayor's um, authority. And if they don't know they exist, then how can they work with them? So it begins with mapping and measurement. And uh, but then it, it, you know, it yields cooperation and maybe investment in not just the brick and mortar investment, but investment in the civic capacity to manage these very chaotic, flexible, exciting um, hybrids between the informal and the formal economy. Uh, this is a skill set that that's, that does not really sit well with cities. Cities want to control things. Urban planners want to control things. Um, so it is a comfort level that this 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 ecosystem these these creatures are operating under your aegis but are an extraordinary asset and so this idea of 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 successful municipal agriculture municipal market systems uh is also a, a challenge to the, the 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 fortress of the city as um you know our our interest is is at the end of the city limits and 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 never beyond this is meant to expand the thinking of the placement of the city within an agricultural region uh, is really like the reinvention of the city state. And therefore, also, what should urban planners do? I think we need to go medieval. <laughs> we need to, to re reevaluate the town square and, and the makings of civic life around these human scaled spaces and that cities maybe are a collection of these small town squares and, um, and, and, and really question the, 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 the devotion to scale that we must scale up. Um, I think we, we need to defend small spaces inside cities and small spaces adjacent to cities and that our, our future is, uh, based upon how effectively we link up and, and forge um lasting mm -hmm. relationships I'm, I'm i'm really happy that we have this conversation because you're you're inspiring me so much and also for the listeners because it's 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 important that we exchange like especially for us working with architecture and urban planning we think sometimes we think we know everything you know yeah but uh, like the reality is something else my, my, <laughs> my favorite thing is 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 uh uh is watching an empty lot you know so an empty lot an unused part of urban, the urban scape that may be owned by someone, may be owned by the city, who knows, um, and just watching it, watching it, you know, the weeds grow on the lot, uh, watching the pathway 
that that pedestrians work on the lot and and many of them say i uh i'm not going to walk around it i'm going to walk through it and then you see a pathway and the pathway is determined not by any urban planner but by the residents who said this is how this space is useful to me now maybe it can be useful in other ways too but they're often not asked yes and uh, now we are in the final section of this episode it's going to be more about you Richard. Uh-oh. <laughs> so let's say if you will get one million dollar in which kind of project will you spend this money on and why uh, well uh it's funny i we all, my wife and i often play this game because we never play the lottery um but we pretend that if we did and we won what what would we put the funding into and uh she always says no question um i would create a global fund um for uh fixing and maintaining public clocks because there's nothing more aggravating than when you see these beautiful public clocks whether they're ancient old beautiful ones or new ones and if they're not functioning well then what the hell's the point of that and that and she says you know it could be a place where you 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 develop the skill set and all you know for 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 maintaining these clocks and i love that idea and i'm like well i i maybe i'd put half of it into that um but i would put my money into travel i'd create a fund that enabled people in 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 um in towns and and again this is also speaking from a north american standpoint where i live uh is that people never get to leave their country therefore they have no idea that people live um meaningful fruitful lives in other places and and that they have creative solutions to problems we have that we would never visualize because we've never seen it and so it would be a fund for 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 exchanges um and 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 i guess what's perhaps you know as as we are so driven by return on investment and measurable outcomes and impact investing what would the impact be uh i guess the answer is i have no idea um and and i think and 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 if if i had the control over that i'd be okay with it i would not try and steer people to facilitated learning so there'd be certain outcomes i'd want to find out what they want their outcomes to be because um i i think that we are trapped by the constraints we put on ourselves and um and our circumstances help to shape that and um and i find that the more i interact with others in other parts of the world the more i realize that um they have some piece of the solution we just don't get to learn from them yeah exactly exactly and 100 years from now what would you love people to say about you or to read about you hmm. let's say they're going to google your name they google my name and they find that he loves farmers markets and had something to do with saving uh food traditions in places that were hammered by um illusions of progress and um that he cared about the dignity of the people who grow the food and the people who purchase the food 
Um, it probably sums it up to that, though I care about many other things. Um, it uh, is certainly the, the, the place where I have learned so much, where I've been forced to reevaluate my ideas and my arrogant urban thinking, and have learned from people who um, have maybe less formal education, but know so much more than I do about how things work. Mm, yeah. And now name one thing you're really proud of that you did in your life. Could be a project or <clears throat> activity. Uh, I think being a parent. <laughs> I mean, it really, it's funny. Once you become a parent, all the other things seem secondary. And, um, and, and, and I know that's rather cliched, but it's, it, it's true. Um, but I guess the other thing would be restarting the farmer's market in New Orleans after Katrina. Um, it was the most emotional uh, reunion. It was the most symbolic fist against the naysayers. Um, mm -hmm. And it was an emotional reminder that farmers who had given up on the city um, discovered at that moment that their future was based on a relationship to the people in the city and vice versa. And so that, that probably yeah. that moment and, and, and yeah. it's a moment, fortunately it still goes on, but it could stop, but still that moment would matter and is probably the mm -hmm. most important. Yeah. Yeah. And Name one thing that you did in your career and you regret now when you're looking back. I, God, there's so many things I regret, you know, that I now I look back <laughs> on. Uh, I don't know if I can point to an actual one that stands out above others. There's so many um, smaller errors I made um, that all pertain to the question of risk. And I, uh, I, you have a, this is a great question and I have a very bad answer because I'm not going to answer with a specific thing that I know is so much more interesting. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe I could pull out as I, as I, as I think through this. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I'm thought of as someone who is comfortable with risk, though I think of myself as fiscally, you know, kind of conservative and I don't take undue risk. And, and yet compared to most people, mm -hmm. they're like, wow, you're, you're high risk. Um, I, I think that there are moments when I should have taken more risk. And instead I, um, I'm always looking for ways in which, um, people are comfortable with where we're going. And, uh, there are moments um, that I perhaps should have taken more risk and cut ties in order to push through change. And um, uh, ultimately, my, my loyalty and commitment to people around me um, has made me misjudge their comfort level with risk. And, um, and I probably, the, the key moments I, I should have pushed harder and taken more risk. 
and and so I think that the lesson is to um, to not be fearful of the, the risk that um, uh, it takes to to make social change. And um, I mean, I, I can give you one example, um, which I, I know would be much better. Uh, uh, in uh, gosh, at the very beginning of us establishing the farmers market in New Orleans, I was inspired originally by the Mondragon cooperatives. In fact, that was what I wanted to create, some version of that. Of course, once you do that, you end up creating something very different. And, and we found that we didn't have the capacity for that, um, but we did have the capacity for farmers markets. But we saw farmers markets as traditional incubators for small business, for microenterprise that should be not just rural, but also urban. So we began to develop a project to develop microenterprises with public housing residents, so largely African American, you know, black public housing residents in New Orleans. And we developed a project called Riverside Pasta. And we it was a job training program where they used the market as the point of sale so as to develop their business. And then the end product is a worker cooperative. Well, one of the 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 participants uh you know had far more experience with 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 prison than work and um found herself in the unfortunate position of being thrust into you know in, in, into jail and our risk averse thinking uh was um because we had federal funding and city funding that this was not acceptable and that if you're in prison, then you're, you're out of the project. And, um, that was my knee jerk response. And, uh, fortunately I had those around me who, who thought I was correct. And then there were those around me who thought, um, uh, I, this was completely wrong. This is the reason why we do the work because it's risky. And because those who have, um, uh, limited set of options find themselves in trouble and we need to grow comfortable with that and um that was you know i, I mean we, in the end we we averted disaster and and she remained part of the program and grew to become an incredible leader um but my instinct was um uh dismissive and uh, judgmental and um and 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 was just so naively unaware of just how prevalent and deep um, the, the the problems of interacting with the police force. Um, you know, and this is this is going back now twenty five twenty five years. Um, but I often relive that in my mind is um, my um, uh, my 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 white privilege was just so evident in how I responded to that issue and. Um, I think I, I hope I learned from that. But a what a story! Yeah, and and if if your life will be in a book, <laughs> what is the title of this book? Mm. The title of the book is um, huh. Guess the the 
gosh, I have so many slogans that people get so sick of hearing them. And it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, which slogan do you pull? Because I do think in, you know, I think, I think in this way, um, uh, I think it, I think the title is think like a pirate or think like pirates is, is, okay. is the, the, definitely cool. the title. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause I think that defends it. <laughs> I mean, oddly enough, I have a book coming out with a, a Japanese co-author this, this year. And, uh, the title is, is such a mystery to most that, that it's funny <laughs> when you think about the, the, the title. Um, no, I think the title is to think like pirates. Yeah. 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 Nice. It's nice that like you believe in this. So yeah, much. it's like, funny. You really your passion. It's it's you. <laughs> it's me. It's sort of my my my, <laughs> yeah. my personal brand. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What 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 are your hobbies? Oh, my hobbies are. Um, By the way, are you good in cooking? Because like you work so much with yeah. food and you know cooking, cooking and gardening are my 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 two most constant hobbies. Uh, of course, mm. it. Uh, at least gardening doesn't doesn't sit well with travel and my work has of course involved so much travel and and that's yeah. frustrating uh oh i think it's 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 cooking and gardening and 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 then uh any sport that involves a racket um and it's funny right now i'm i i have I have shifted because of the pandemic. I used to believe strongly in, in squash. <laughs> I, I lived, I lived and obsessed with squash. Uh, and now, uh, and then I had to go to tennis because of the pandemic. You couldn't be indoors. And now, and now, um, pickleball is a sport that was invented 40 years ago in America. And it's like, it's like ping pong meets tennis or table tennis meets tennis. And, uh, there was an article recently about, uh, pickleball, can pickleball save America? And, um, what I love about it is what I love about markets. It's the people and, and it's the close proximity of playing a sport with others. Uh, but now anything that involves hitting a ball with an instrument is, is, uh, uh, is yes, probably my hobby because it's physical and because you get into the zone and you don't think about, um, anything and i think that's what most people love about the hobbies and i feel that about cooking and i feel that about gardening nice and what is like what is your daily routine now uh what time you wake up what do you do i wake up early and i walk the dog and i feed the birds and then i start at work early um i think it's always a challenge to have that work-life balance um i never had very good work-life balance when I ran an organization. And I think that's one of the challenges because we, we are always, um, in the civil society sector, we don't have enough resources. So therefore we squeeze people, we squeeze ourselves and that's not healthy. Um, uh, working as a consultant, I feel like I'm always working and always playing at the same time. So I, I feel that that is much better, but it's strange. You know, when you write, you're at the computer. When you're meeting, you're on the computer. Um, what what I what I dream of is having a stand up desk so that I'm moving all the time because I think when I move, um, I'll get there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there. Uh, but I, I do think that our lives have become much less structured, um, and less structured. I think. I, I think. I think the lines between. Um, 
home and, and, and work are, are, are much more blurred. And I think there's a good side to that and a bad side to that. And it really is financial pressures or personal priorities that force us to um, achieve some kind of balance. Um, but I think having hobbies, I think cooking yourself and gardening yourself are great because they force you to, um, to, to develop better balance because if you don't cook, you don't eat. If you don't water the plants, <laughs> you don't get, you don't yeah. get, you, you don't get fruits from your labor. And, uh, <laughs> and therefore that forces you away from the computer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's smart. That's smart. <laughs> Yes, and, and now we are in the last section and it's a, we have three questions left. The first one is about you giving a message to yourself. Mm. What is your message to Richard? God, these are really existential. Um, my message is to trust others. I mean, I can preach that, but if you're a control freak, you're a control freak. And um, I have always have to learn how to trust others and allow for them to make mistakes because uh, that's how you learn. And the next question is about you giving three takeaway messages to the listener. Mm. I think the three takeaway messages are... to cook your own dinner, to shop at <laughs> farmer's markets, and to ask your grandparents what they cooked. Yeah, these are very, very hands-on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Yeah, good, good. And, and I, and I yeah. guess they're hands-on because uh, I... I went to a school that had it was a, it was a, a rather competitive, you know, um, high school, and their 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 ethos, their their, their motto was "We learn to do by doing," because it started as a manual training school. And okay. the funny thing is that the school I attended was anything but manual training. It was anything but the ethos <laughs> of "We learn to do by doing." It was so academic, and. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and I didn't fit into the school, um, but I but I yeah. but I went there, and the one thing that I think I learned from them was their motto, and I think the motto <laughs> we learn to do by doing is so much more important than than having some coherent yeah. ideological concept that we want everyone to fit into, and True. I think this is why we need to trust others, why we need to 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 do certain things because when we do things. We, 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 we learn. Yeah. And the last question is going to be you asking it to us. What is your question to me and to the listeners? I guess my, 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 my question is, are you comfortable being a consumer of food? Or... Can you carve out space in your life to be a protagonist, to actually be active in um, 
finding out where does your food come from, from having a relationship to the food uh, that you put into your body um, as something that aligns with your personal values of having trust and relationships with your surroundings. Um, because there is a terrible disconnect um, where we say one thing and we do another. And um, uh, if you are comfortable pointing and clicking and having no idea where the food comes from, well then are, um, are your ideas isolated um, as, as, as something that you can segment into your lives or is it integrated into your daily life? And um, uh, I reached a point where I was no longer comfortable with that and I wanted to know, I, the transparency, I, I wanted to know because um, I'm not just a consumer, I, I am a protagonist. And um, and I guess the question to you is, is are, are, are you comfortable with that? And, and have you have, have you evaluated how much you can, you, the power that you have as a protagonist? Yes. And Richard, thank you so much for giving your valuable time to record this episode. And I'm really, really happy that we had this conversation and I'm very inspired. So thank you so much again. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I, I really enjoyed the fact that this was not a conversation that I probably have had in many, many years, or if at all. Um, because it's it's um, it was a conversation, not a press conference. <laughs> 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 yeah, and, and, uh, uh, thank you for creating that space because we need more space thanks. to actually uh, to, to to sort of actually get outside of our 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 our, our usual formula formulaic conversations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but thanks for uh, sharing your story and being so open. Well, thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. You learned something new and also got inspired by the guest. Don't forget to share the episode on your social media and recommend it to people you think they are really interested in this topic. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.